0: My name is Adrian Goldberg and welcome to the Week in Politics on the Byline Times podcast. The Byline Times is what the papers don't say, what radio doesn't report and what telly doesn't tell you. This time, the COP27 climate conference, what the government and the papers who support them like to describe as a migrant crisis. Matt Hancock's appearance on I'm a Celebrity and the ongoing impasse in the Northern Ireland executive with the Stormont Elections now postponed until the new year. We'll be discussing all of that with Stephen Farry, previously a minister in the Northern Ireland Executive, now the MP for North Down, plus the Byline Times political editor, Adam Bienkoff. Before all that, though, just a reminder that the Byline Times podcast is funded by subscriptions to the Byline Times. It is our brilliant monthly newspaper. And if you buy the print edition, you get exclusive content that you can't read anywhere else and we can report without fear or favor because there's no billionaire or shadowy corporation telling us what to say our funding comes from ordinary subscribers people like you so if you can please subscribe to the byline times you get more details over at our website bylinetimes.com subscriptions start from as little as three pounds a month that's over at Byline Times. Dot com Welcome then to Adam and Stephen. Uh, Stephen tell us from your perspective why the Northern Ireland Executive is still well effectively frozen.
1: Well, it's it's complicated, but there's probably a short-term reason and a much deeper reason. The immediate issue is that the DEP walked out in February of this year in protest over the Northern Ireland Protocol and their demand for it to be scrapped. I think it's probably important to put in context that the majority of people in Northern Ireland and elected representatives do either support the Protocol or see it as, as necessary to the very particular challenges posed by Brexit to Northern Ireland. But the DEP have turned it into a constitutional issue for them when well, it's not. And they're using now the absence of an executive as leverage uh, to try to, to force their version of the way forward uh, over the line. The much deeper reason is that we have a flawed uh, approach to, to power sharing. The Good Friday Agreement has now been in place for, for 24 years. Over that period, the institutions have only been fully operational for 60% of that time. So they've been non-operational for 40%. So that points to some issues in terms of how the institutions work, or rather don't work. And in particular, the issue of vetoes around executive formation, which the two largest parties effectively have. So between 2017 and 2020, Sinn Féin walked out of the institutions and we had a three-year hiatus which ended with the New Decade New Approach Agreement. And this time around, it's the DEP who have refused to go in. And we we had an election back in May of this year, which uh, didn't lead to the reformation of the executive. So from my party's point of view, we strongly support the Good Friday Agreement, but we believe it does need to evolve to address the the changing circumstances. And that includes moving away from this uh, rigid form of executive formation to either move fully to what we term a voluntary coalition, which would be sustained by a a majority of, of MLA, something like two-thirds or 70% support, both without any use of unionist or nationalist uh, designations. Or a, a much more sort of Pacific reform could be if any party refuses to take up their seats, first minister or deputy first minister, that the next party in line uh, would be eligible then to take up that post. That way we can have a uh, government. We're almost faced with this choice between continued drift and deadlock and... The government having to just intervene and keep the lights on, or the alternative being some more a more formal direct rule with some sort of Irish dimension, which will be difficult to get right. Some people people will welcome that, others will see it as very controversial. We would argue before you get to that point of direct rule, the government needs to look at reform of the institutions to see if those who are winning uh, are able to do so. I could use the frame of coalition of the wedding, but that that does have some baggage from our recent history. (laughs) And as
0: the Alliance Party, then, you sit between the unionists and the nationalists. Your position is to work within the institutions as they are for progress. The fault line that you describe in the Good Friday Agreement is obviously designed to ensure that neither side of that divide of either unionist or nationalist is left behind or is unhappy with the political status quo. But it means, as in this instance then, that if one side or another cries foul, then the executive simply is gummed up, it
1: does not operate. Yeah, that's essentially it. Now, we would argue that it's one thing to have a veto over policy decisions So, that was the original intention of of these vetoes. So, say uh, you're touching a a policy touching upon a sensitive area, it is important to have that cross community consent uh, for that type of of policy or or that type of reform. So, hence the vetoes. It's an entirely different matter if one party is stopping an executive being formed in the first place and preventing any government happening. I mean, that's not the case of majority rule, it's the case of, of minority rule, minority blockage. And in practical terms, what
0: does that mean for the people of Northern Ireland? Because I've certainly heard suggestion that certain funding decisions which are invested in the executive can't be exercised. And that's having an impact, for example, on the delivery of health in Northern Ireland.
1: Absolutely. Northern Ireland's in a really bad place at present in terms of Funding issues and our public services. First of all, there's no current uh, budget for this uh, financial year, never mind one being put in place for next year. So, government departments are currently spending in a vacuum, and some are, are overspending uh, without any financial control. So, we're, we're really storing up problems in that respect. Our health service bank needs uh, reform, and we're coming up upon the winter pressures that we, we normally get most years. We have longer waiting lists than, than anywhere else in the UK, so that's really pressing. And uh, I suppose most crucially of all is the cost of living situation. In Northern Ireland, we have more people, proportionally who are on benefits than elsewhere in the UK. So the cost of living crisis really bites hard here. But we haven't yet had some of the cost of living support measures sort of low as they may be uh, elsewhere in the UK, but those have not been rolled out in Northern Ireland. So, for example, the £400 energy energy support payment hasn't yet been delivered, and uh, we're still also expecting the the £100 payment for oil. That hasn't been delivered either. And uh, so as you should put in context, um, in Northern Ireland, nearly 70% of households are on home heating oil. By comparison, it's only about 4% of uh, households in the rest of the UK, where gas is much more prevalent. So that puts in context the importance of getting this over the line.
0: This is directly impacting then
1: the living
0: of people in Northern Ireland and the the health of people in Northern Ireland.
1: Yes, if we had an executive, we would get the the money directly from the Treasury and we'd deliver the schemes locally. But because there's no executive, the UK Department of Business uh, is having to step in, uh, but it's, it's happening quite slowly. And in the same way, we expect the Northern Ireland Secretary of State to legislate Put in place a temporary budget for Northern Ireland for this current financial year, but that will be just be care and maintenance. I won't see any of the big decisions that we need to need to see being taken happening.
0: Adam, I know that there are lots of very important things going on at the moment across the UK and globally, of which the UK is part. But we're talking about a population of 1.8 million in Northern Ireland, and really quite significant impacts, as Stephen has explained. Have you heard this discussed in any detail this week in Westminster?
2: Yes, it's incredibly important, as you say. It's a big part of the UK and it's essentially being held in paralysis over a number of years now. Downing Street had been holding the prospect of a general election almost as leverage over the the DP, But of course, the deadline came and it went. And uh, under the terms of law as it currently stands, they have to call an election I think it's within 12 weeks of the end of October, so by the end of January. But speaking to people in Downing Street off the record, they've been saying this week that they're reluctant to call that election and that it's possible that they could change the law or try and delay that. So. I think the Northern Ireland Secretary is going to give a statement to Parliament next week in which he's going to set out the next steps. But I think the government is reluctant to follow this process through. And I think we may see a situation where they have to change the law in order to delay this process. Because their feeling is that an election, while it was used as a threat to try and get the executive to form, it wouldn't necessarily really help the situation. And it could actually entrench the positions of the DUP and other parties. So in a sense, they they challenged the DUP.
0: The DUP called their bluff, mm-hmm. uh, and we are we are in this situation
2: now. Yes, absolutely, and we'll have to wait and see what Northern Ireland Executive uh, says next week. But I do agree with Stephen. I think you know you have to look at. Is the Good Friday Agreement and the power-sharing arrangements that they currently stand, is it fit for purpose? I think it's something like four of the last six years executive hasn't been formed. You know, just threatening elections isn't going to change that. I think there does need to be, as I says, an evolution of the arrangements there. The wide-ranging veto, essentially it's a sort of veto over the democratic process itself in Northern Ireland. It clearly isn't working. And people in Northern Ireland aren't being properly represented, their views represented and as Stephen says, a lot of the big decisions are being taken far away from the people who are actually affected by them. So I think something fundamental has to change, but it's obviously a very delicate situation. And the government has got a lot of delicate situations in its books at the moment. But this is a very important one, and, and they do need to come up with some kind of solution over the coming months and years.
0: Yeah. At the heart of this, of course, is Brexit, which was opposed by the majority of people in Northern Ireland. And it is that. Situation, which has led to the creation of this effective border down the Irish Sea, which the Conservatives said would never happen, it has happened. But in our recent conversations, Adam, you've detected a slight softening of tone from the Rishi Sunak government, certainly, and perhaps a suggestion that
2: some kind of compromise can be found. I think there's an acknowledgement that some of the confrontational rhetoric and approach of certainly of the Johnson government wasn't really working and in certainly in tone steve baker and others have tried to take a more conciliatory approach to, to northern ireland and to the irish government as well And i think that, that that's a necessary first step but it doesn't change as we say the sort of fundamentals of the situation and brexit is a big part of that obviously uh, northern ireland protocol uh, the government is still pushing ahead with northern ireland protocol bill these are really difficult problems I'm not sure there is a an easy solution but if you're looking for a positive at least the government is starting to sort of seriously engage with these issues which in the past arguably they were not Stephen nobody wants fixed border
0: points between Northern Ireland and the Republic indeed it's one of the conditions of the Good Friday Agreement or the Belfast Agreement that that should not be the case at the same time After Brexit, we have the United Kingdom, which is not in the EU. We have the Republic of Ireland, which is in the European Union. And there has to be some way of ensuring that trade between the two sides of that invisible border are managed properly. Now, at the moment, as a result of the Northern Ireland Protocol, we do have effectively a border down the Irish Sea. Is there an alternative?
1: Well, short of um, reconsidering Brexit, potentially the UK rejoining the, the single market, uh, which I would advocate, by the way, which is probably a wider debate for another time. You are left with something like the, the protocol. I mean, Brexit does pose fundamental challenges to, to Northern Ireland. I mean, this place only can work through sharing and interdependence. And we have to find that balance between the different interlocking relationships across these islands. So a hard Brexit brings a fault line and and an economic interface between the EU's uh, economic zone and the UK's economic zone. Either has to be be managed at the land border on the island of Ireland, which was ruled out fairly quickly as being an on-runner or down the Irish Sea. Now, the challenge is to get those checks as light touch as possible. And uh, the, the protocol is there as the response to that. Working off of a hard Brexit. So it's a, it's a necessary, but uh, something we perhaps we never really wanted, uh, intervention uh, to to allow us to have some degree of protection. And it also gives Northern Ireland uh, dual market access uh, to both Great Britain and the wider EU market. So the protocol bill currently going through Westminster is actually very counterproductive. It's not wanted by the majority of businesses or elected representatives in in Northern Ireland. It's something the government are pursuing uh, for a a one-sided agenda. Perhaps there's more hope in the talks that are currently happening between the UK and the European Commission. And uh, we do want to see some progress on that. I suppose the key issue in terms of restoring devolution is to see how quickly that progress can be made. Pressure will then be applied to the DEP to go back in, and that will be the, the big decision point. If they don't go back in at that stage, what we will have to look either at uh, some f- very radical reforms to the Good Friday Agreement, or otherwise power sharing is dead. There is a prospect that the DEP have put themselves so deeply into the trench in terms of their demands that a, a pragmatic deal between the European Commission and the UK isn't seen as being uh, sufficient for them. And uh, the UK aren't just here to partner to the I mean that there are broader interests in terms of making peace with the European Union because of the energy crisis, what's happening in, in Ukraine, and also to avoid a trade war.
0: Yeah. I mean, you can see why unionists don't like it. It does push Northern Ireland closer towards the Republic and the European Union in trade terms, and thus weakens the links between Northern Ireland and Great Britain. But this is something that was not of the nationalist making. It was not something that it was of the Republic of Ireland's making. And the DUP, it seems to me, is effectively punishing the Westminster government for something that it doesn't like. But it's not the Westminster government that's paying the price for that. It's the people of Northern Ireland: unionist,
1: yep. nationalist, or none of the above. I mean, this is a huge self-reflector, wouldn't? from the DUP who pushed Brexit. And indeed, they blocked the, the more moderate approaches to addressing Northern Ireland under Theresa May. So they have pursued this really hardline agenda. And they talk about having to strap the protocol to save the union. You'd actually turn that on its head and say that allowing the protocol to work will actually stabilise things in, in, in pursuing this very hardline agenda. They're actually losing a lot of moderate opinion who would have been tacitly pro-union in terms of any future referendum on the border issue in Northern Ireland's uh, position in in the UK. So a lot of people are now much more open-minded around constitutional change and uh, one of the major turnoffs for them is the approach that the DEP have taken alongside what they say is a very hard right-wing government in London. Adam, another
0: seemingly intractable problem is that of what, The right-wing newspapers would like to call the migrant crisis, which other people would see as a home office crisis, the failure to deal with the number of people who are seeking refuge in this country, people are illegally entitled to do so in accordance with international treaties signed by this country. And we have these awful scenes that we've seen coming out over the last few days from the processing centre in Manston, story of people being, in inverted commas, dumped in London who've been released from Manston but have no guidance on where to go next.
2: It is such, such a mess, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, you've heard people calling it a migrant crisis and the government has actually gone further than that. The the Home Secretary, Suella Braverman this week referred it to an invasion on our southern coast. And and some of the rhetoric from Conservative MPs this week has been sort of off the charts. And this is quite dangerous, really. It's It's dangerous sort of politically for the government because it's putting attention on something where their record is not great. The one thing that sort of leavers and remainers all agree on, actually, according to the, the polling, is that the government's handling of immigration has been pretty terrible. Whether you're in favour of looser immigration or firmer immigration, the current system isn't working. But it's also dangerous in terms of the rhetoric. At the start of the week, we had an attack on a migrant centre in Dover, a petrol bomb, by a suspected far-right terrorist. And within days of that happening, for the government and to be referring to it as an invasion and for a set of MPs talking about sending people back on their dinghies to France, and there was a big debate in Parliament, which was dominated by talk about Albanian men. This is really sort of the language and the rhetoric of the far right. And it doesn't help the situation in Dover. It doesn't help the people fleeing, trying to seek a new life in the UK. It doesn't help the people who live in the area where these people are arriving. And it doesn't help the government politically, either because it's you know, as John Curtis said at a briefing I, I attended this week, all the government really doing is pointing attention to its own Achilles' heel, which is an issue which the the public believe that they are failing on, and you can kind of see the motivation for the government in seeking to make this a big issue at the moment because it's benefited them in the past. Certainly, post Brexit and in the run up to 2019, the government were able to motivate voters by saying, look, if we can get Brexit done, then it will help us solve a lot of these immigration problems. We'll be able to control our borders a lot more effectively. Well, that clearly hasn't happened post-Brexit. And the polling, as John Curtis pointed out this week, shows that the Brexiteers and Remainers both believe that Brexit isn't the way to control immigration. And actually, if you look at the statistics, what's actually happened is immigration hasn't gone down post-Brexit. What's happened is there's been a change in how immigration has been made up. So whereas before 2020, we had a lot more immigrants from Europe, now we have a lot more immigrants from outside of the EU, a lot more diverse immigration cohort. And you could argue that's not really what a lot of Brexiteers voted for. So it's a terrible situation. There's horrible scenes of children being detained in Dover. It's a complete mess. Nobody's happy about it. The government, with their rhetoric, is only making a bad situation much worse.
0: What the row over migration, and it's worth just mentioning in in passing, that in my lifetime, the people who I've heard referring to migrants as invaders are in order, the National Front, the Mm -hmm. BNP, and Suella Braverman, the Conservative Home Secretary. One of the impacts of this discussion Was that it took the heat off Suella Braverman herself in a week which started when she was under pressure over whether she'd given an honest account of why she had lost her previous post as Home Secretary just a few weeks earlier under Liz Truss, whether she'd told the truth about the emails that were sent from her personal email.
2: You see this a lot when governments get into trouble. Uh, They try and divert attention away to outsiders, to immigrants, immigrant groups, etc. The problem is it's diverting people to an issue where the government isn't performing well. And it's also diverting attention to the fact that the Home Secretary isn't doing a good job. So it's not really helping them in that regard either. But more broadly, the, the big selling point of the Rishi Sunak Premiership was that he was going to bring professionalism, he said it himself in his speech when he became Prime Minister, and competence to government we just haven't seen that so far. The reappointment of Suella Braveman was a terrible decision. It's gone down really badly, even with Conservative Party members, some polling this week suggests. And she's not handling this crisis well. We've hardly seen it. She's not been doing interviews. She turned up in a Chinook helicopter at Manston, almost even like a war zone. So it's really kind of amping up the rhetoric and the politics of this. As you say, the situation isn't getting better. If you actually look at the statistics... Yes, there has been a rise in asylum applications in the last couple of years. Historically speaking, it's still quite a bit lower than it has been in some recent decades. And what's really changed is not that it's not that there's a huge wave of new people seeking asylum in, in the UK. It's just the, the method through which people are coming to the UK has changed. So whereas in the past, lots of people came through hiding in lorries or, or through safe routes... Now, because of tighter lorry checks and, and, and other measures, people are being forced to take small boats across, which is actually cheaper for people seeking to come to the, the UK. People used to be charged sort of, tens of thousands of pounds to come across a lorry. Now they can get across on a dinghy for a couple of thousand pounds. And it's much more visual to people rather than people sort of sneaking across the lorry and sort of disappearing into society. Now, you know, you've got people like Nigel Farage sort of putting up videos and TikToks of boats coming across And it doesn't look good and the government needs to be seen to to getting a grip of it. But it's it's not. This is more about the appearance than the actual problem, which I say, you know, yes, it has been a rise, but it's still historically not at a massively high level.
0: Mm. I did a really good episode of the podcast this week. I do recommend people listen to it with Sheila Reynolds from Freedom from Torture and saying that the only crisis is a crisis of compassion. What's the view from north down on all this, Stephen?
2: Well, um, I think I
1: agree with uh, compassion. I think it's it's useful to put this in in context. There are over 80 million refugees or internally displaced people uh, in the world. Uh, Most of those are are in countries that are quite close to where people originally uh, fled from. The UK takes proportionally fewer asylum seekers and refugees than most other European countries. I think perhaps most tellingly of all, uh, well over 70% of asylum claims at present are actually deemed to be successful, which really puts this claim that these are economic migrants uh, in its in proper context. It's, it's, a, it's a load of rubbish. And uh, these are people who are fleeing war and uh, persecution, and the climate change is going to be a major driver of this uh, over the coming years. So this is going to be something that's with us for many years to come. So the government needs to improve the speed with which it processes claims. It's happening far, far too slowly. And uh, so you end up with people stacked in hotels and other accommodation and getting really frustrated. Um, The UK has a labour shortage in, in many areas, and particularly areas such as hospitality and care homes where people... Are really struggling to get the the workers that they need so this could actually be a big win-win but it does mean the government have to make the investments in health and education and housing across the board uh, not just for people who are coming to live here but for uh, for others as well uh, and that's the, the way forward here we have to accept this is now part of, of our reality and we have a, a global position of responsibility as leaders to, to be welcoming
0: you mentioned climate change there, Stephen. Of course, COP27 is just about to get underway in Egypt. What are your hopes for the climate summit?
1: Well, um, I suppose it has been rather low key in terms of the build up, especially compared to, to Glasgow last year. And I appreciate that this isn't as significant as, as Glasgow was supposed to be. I think he should have should made a mistake in not uh, leading from the front on this issue. I think he does have a bit of a blind spot when it comes to climate issues. Back whenever he was uh, Chancellor and, and making his, his budget statements, that even in a much more benign economic environment, he wasn't saying much around the climate at all, if, any, if anything. Uh, so I don't think he really gets this and understands this. It's important that we continue to invest in, in the UK in what I would term a Green New Deal it's something that offers us the opportunity for job creation alongside tackling the, the needs to combat climate change. So there are opportunities there. I think that we're in danger of losing momentum. Obviously, the war in Ukraine has uh, been a major outlier here and has, uh, has, has knocked a lot of assumptions, of course. But we have to uh, to get back in terms of what we're doing around energy efficiency and uh, renewables, because what that has done, perhaps more than anything, is, is pointed to our uh, over-reliance upon fossil fuels or energy. So while it has to be some immediate interventions to keep, to keep the lights on, we also have to be doing a lot more to ensure that we're, we have our own energy security, but also that we're combating climate change at the same time.
0: Just put a podcast out recently about the COP27 conference with Amelia Womack, former Deputy Leader of the Green Party. And also with Dr. Ella Gilbert from the British Antarctic Survey. Well worth listening to as well. And before we go, Adam, I must just mention Matt Hancock. And it's although it's a bit of a jokey throwaway item in one regard, he's going on I'm a Celebrity. I think a lot of people are angry for two reasons. One is that he's earning 80 grand a year as an MP at the taxpayer's expense while going into the jungle. Isn't that really taking the you know what? But also the fact he's regarded by many people as the health secretary who allowed thousands of people to die on his watch. People who were discharged from hospital, who were not properly tested, who were put into care homes and who both died themselves and or passed on. COVID-19 to other residents of care homes. For him to be going on I'm a Celebrity and picking up what we're here is something like 400 grand leaves a very bad taste in the mouths of many, many people.
2: As much as that, 400 grand. That's that's what I've I've heard, yeah. Yes, I think a lot of people will be seeing this news and seeing that he's lost the the Conservative Party whip for going on I'm a Celebrity, get me out of here, and wondering, well, he's lost the whip for this. Why is this the big scandal? I think people are right to be angry about their MPs not representing them. And this goes beyond Matt Hancock. There's the obvious example as well of our former Prime Minister Boris Johnson, who seems to have gone on multiple holidays since leaving the job and is giving speeches all around the world rather than representing his constituents in Uxbridge. I think people want to see their MPs doing the job that they've been elected for. I did think it was telling how quick Rishi Sunak and the Conservative MPs more generally were to ditch Matt Hancock. It doesn't seem like he has a huge amount of friends in the party. He seems to have annoyed a lot of people on all wings of the party. Conservative MPs sort of making jokes at his expense in the House of Commons this week. You know, I I think really it's bizarre that he's taken this decision to do this. It's not the first time that Conservative MP has gone on the programme. In fact, I think it was about 10 years ago that Nadine Dorries also went on, I'm a celebrity, get me out of here. And she also lost the whip. The difference, I think, with Nadine Doris is she continued to have friends within the party, most notably Boris Johnson himself, who put her forward to the cabinet. I don't think there's much danger of Matt Hancock being put in a future cabinet after this experience. I think he's made the decision that after Rishi Sunak came in as prime minister, that was probably his best chance to get a job in cabinet. Rishi Sunak appointing people from all wings of the party. If he can't get into Rishi Sunak's government in those conditions, then he's unlikely to get into any future government. And I think he's probably made the decision that his time is up, possibly as an MP altogether, but certainly as a government minister. And he probably made the decision that he he would rather just cash in and get his 400 grand eating kangaroo parts in in the Australian jungle. You know,
0: Stephen, do you think Matt Hancock should be just kicked out of parliament or at least be forced to have a by-election if he insists on going into the jungle
1: well under the current rules unless he is disciplined under the standard regime uh, there's no way that he can be removed i do think he should do a decent thing and resign and just have a by-election It's quite clearly he he doesn't have the commitment to being an MP any longer. His heart's not in it. He's he's other things he wants to do in terms of his uh, new uh, career as a celebrity uh, and uh, a media person. You can't do the two things at once. If you speak to any other MP, they will tell you this is a a seven-day-a-week job and uh, often many, many late nights or early mornings, and the casework coming to you and the other demands upon you never stops. So I don't see how he can go away for three or four weeks and just leave that up in the air. I think he has to show responsibility to his constituents. I think it's one thing if you're doing something that's based in the UK and you're dipping in and out of it, that may be just about doable. But not going to Australia... Stephen, great to speak to you. Thank
0: you so much for your time. Stephen Farry, the MP for Dan, member of the Alliance Party, deputy leader of the Alliance Party. Thanks also to Adam Bienkoff, Byline Times political editor. I'm Adrian Goldberg. This has been the week in politics on the Byline Times. If you want to support what we do, then please take out a subscription to the Byline Times. It's a brilliant monthly newspaper and you not only get that paper as well, but you're helping to support the podcast, Byline Radio and Byline TV too. So check out subscription details over at our website bylinetimes.com we'll see you again very soon but for now bye